Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight is one of my regular panel, Bruce Garrick. Bruce, welcome to the show. Hello. And we are also joined once again by our friend, Rowan Kaiser. Rowan, welcome back to the show. Thanks. So freelance writer Rowan Kaiser uh, joins us once again because... He's been playing a little game called Gary Grigsby's War in the East. Now, we've already done a show on Gary Grigsby's War in the East, uh, but it's a good time to revisit it, in part because I think Rowan had some really interesting experiences uh, playing it as sort of a newcomer to uh, the hardest of the hardcore wargaming. And also because War in the East recently got, uh, relatively recently, got an expansion, uh, Dawn to the Danube, uh, which covers the... It's it's later war scenarios covering the Stalingrad campaign all the way uh, until you know near the end, uh, and so Bruce and I have been playing a little bit of that. Uh, but Rowan, actually, I wanted to start with you because I was kind of surprised when you just sort of went out on a mission to, you know, not only play a war game, but you basically picked the uh, meanest and most un- unaccessible looking war game around and uh, took it on. I'm curious what motivated that. Well. I think it's that it was the meanest and least apparently accessible, although I found it actually fairly easy to play once I um, stopped reading the tutorial. Hmm. Um, It it was that as I was growing up and paying attention to war games and kind of trying some and looking at some others, like Gary Grigsby's War in the East was the one that was consistently cited in computer gaming world and whatever as the the densest but most um, rewarding war game around. And seeing that there was a new Gary Grigsby's, or or War in Russia was the old one, this one's War in the East, Um, but same scope. Uh, Seeing that there was a new one that that was out was, uh, it piqued my curiosity. And then I asked you and Troy about it, and uh, you guys said that it was also really good. So I decided to just go for it and see what would happen. Oh, I was also intrigued by the price point, because costs $80 instead of $60, and that's something that's very rare these days. And, uh, and even weirder as, for PC games, to be honest. Yeah, and as someone who believes that we should have like more different price points for games, which also includes that some should be more than the $60 average, I, was, I wanted to test and see if it was worth that, or, you know... If there was something that could justify it, I, I have difficulty talking about worth in terms of games because, you know, I don't know your price points. I don't know how much you earn. $80 might be all you earn in a month. But if you had the $80 to spend, how this game might fit into that. And Yeah, the, the, value, the value discussion's uh, an interesting one and, and complicated one. I think worth uh, revisiting uh, during this discussion. But I, I kind of wanted to talk about... You know, you mentioned that you kind of got into the game after you shit canned the tutorial. And so, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot on this show, really, is sort of how games teach themselves. And in particular, how certain genres uh, really struggle to make themselves, uh, you know, accessible or understood. And so what sort of, you know, opposition did you run into as, as you were trying to find your feet in War of the East? Well, the tutorial is a PDF that's like 35 pages, um, and it basically goes through each button on the interface and says what it does in order. And yeah, that's just like the opposite of the way that people learn. 
like I want to know how to move my units first. I want to know how to attack with my units second. And it took 30 pages for me to get to those things. Instead, it's telling me how to create new units out of headquarters, which when I told you that, you were like, why the hell would you even teach that in the tutorial? It's almost irrelevant in the main game itself. Um, and I, that was the first thing that I actually clicked on. That was a thing that I could do. Um, so I, I, it just felt like whoever designed that had no conception of how to um, explain something to a person who wanted to use it. Yeah, something I find myself doing a lot in wargame manuals actually is I do control F for everything basically, and I just start sort of plaintively start typing in search terms, hoping that like you know the the words I'm putting in will lead me to an explanation of what I want to look up. Yeah, I, I I'm not even sure I I'm not even sure when it tells you like about uh, shift right clicking to you know launch group attacks. I think I might have discovered that just like through sheer trial and error. Uh, because the interface has some overlap with like office software, you know, why not try, you know, shift selecting and then gathering stuff up into a ball and, uh, you know, group attacking because yeah, the, the way the war in the East tutorial begins. And actually I think a lot of war games start this way is they look at the central interface and they say, since you're going to be using this, you know, throughout the game, uh, let's take you through it item by item, label each and every button on the, uh, interface and go through it that way, which I think leads us to another issue is, you know, once you've gone through that tutorial and that's the first thing the game teaches you about itself, you start to realize a lot of these things have like extreme prominence on the main interface and they really shouldn't. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've played seven months of the campaign and I haven't used probably two thirds of the buttons. Bruce, you've played a lot more of the game. You know, as we're complaining about the the way the interface, uh, you know, presents itself, uh, do you, do you share these concerns, or if you've gotten deeper into the game, are are you playing around with you know those, those other those other buttons, those other features a little more? Like you checking the weather all the time, for instance. Um, well, <clears throat> a couple things. First of all, there's a huge difference between playing the game well um, multiplayer and playing the game well single player, and uh, I have to say that I am nowhere near uh, being a, a competent multiplayer player. And I think that that is where you actually learn to start doing some uh, tricks and um, manipulations that in the single player you don't really have to do. Now, I'm, I'm pretty used to the Gary Grigsby interface. Um, as far as the most uh, you know, daunting or most impenetrable uh, uh, war game, I think it, that would have to be uh, Gary Grisby's War in the Pacific. Um, it's much, much um, more, it's much more difficult to uh, play that game well because it's so opaque and the the, the objectives are, are so not even, it, it, <laughs> it's a game that you, you don't even know what you're supposed to be doing. I think in, in War in the East, you kind of do. I mean, there's Moscow and there's a big star on it, and you should probably try to take the units that you have on the left side of the screen and move them to the right side of the screen. So I think that that makes it a little uh, more straightforward as a game. Um, but I'm used to Gary Grigsby's kind of interfaces where things just are seem to be there. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem to make any sense for the uh, you know the victory point. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the victory points all the time when I'm playing a scenario, and I don't understand why I have to click into a different tab and then click on the victory points. 
Whereas, uh, you know, for other things, uh, you know, when I'm toggling, why am I toggling the victory points in one tab and then toggling the units displayed on the screen in a completely different tab? So uh, I do definitely agree that the, the, the interface isn't, I don't know if it's well, not well thought out or just it's thought out for a certain type of player who's not me. Um, but uh, I definitely, I definitely share that, share that impression. Now, re- regardless of that, it's, uh, the game is actually fairly easy to just play. Uh, I think, I think it's easier for a war game, people who are war gamers to play because, um, the thing about the attacks, I was like, what, what's this, you know, what's this attack? Why, why is this turning into this kind of, um, arrow? And I just flip to the, the uh, part about deliberate and hasty attacks. I'm like, oh, okay, I see exactly how this game is 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 uh, because I played board war games and 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 sort of know the different ways in which people try to model things. I'm like, oh, I, I I understand exactly what they're doing here. And so then I just dug through those rules really quick and, and figured it out. But somebody who's just coming to the genre and having no idea, uh, you know what this is based on, it, it's it, I'm I'm just I'm shocked that uh, and 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 very impressed that uh, Rowan was able to. Uh, uh, kind of get into it, and I think that that also shows that the game fundamentally is is pretty accessible. Well, I have some war game background. Like it reminded me a lot of the Operational Art of War, which mm. I played a decent amount of, okay. though um, I never actually like engaged with at the level that I've managed to engage with this. But the idea of the hasty attacks and the the stacks that you have the more deliberate attacks with is it's similar to that. I think the buttons are different though. Yeah, there's there's a lot of concepts that that carry over between the two. Uh, I I do think I don't know. They're, they're, you know, it's 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 interesting. I think there are some things that I just I, I like that there's a level of intuition with uh, the operational of war that I don't always feel is there with um, with war in the east, uh, particularly when it comes to factors like unit cohesion and such. Uh, the the rules are very simple uh, and very easy to un- easy to sort of see there on the in, what, um, in which game. In operational art of war, oh, I see. Okay, uh, you know where it's like you know you pick a, you pick units in a formation and highlights all the units in the formation. You just park their headquarters near them, and you got the bonus, and that's really all you need to worry about. Uh, where I, uh, you know, that happens war, more in the east, though. Yeah, but war in the east, you've got these t- you know the, these tiered command structures where you've got you know the sub headquarters that I think there's just and. Uh, that's not so much a complaint. It has to be this way because you're dealing with the entire Eastern Front. You know, things are descending through the chain of command, and you've got to have, you know, where the army group headquarters is, uh, it has to be in touch with its constituent armies, et cetera, et cetera. It's got to work that way. At the same time, you know, that also creates, I, I, you know, the, it creates some challenges for uh, how much you can intuitively understand uh, just sort of looking at the game. Because what you're not playing Operation Red War, you are playing this really detailed, um, you know, grand tactical, uh, you know, version of the entire Eastern Front. Yeah, I I ended up playing like two months of the the starting campaign and then restarting because I discovered how important railroad railroads were and <laughs> where the little the little button to have the the railroad repair that you actually control as opposed to the dozens of ones that you don't control. Right. That, like that's in a really weird place on the interface. Mm-hmm. There's a the the RRC button on the unit card does right. not done in the same way Crazy. as the most movement and attack through the game. So I when I tried it a second time and I actually got my railroads 
moving somewhere, I think uh, my my invasion of Russia went a little smoother. Oh, and I, I know what I was going to mention. The the other thing that it takes a little bit of time to master, and it actually handles this much much better than the Operation Art of War, which tries to use time time units. Uh, but in War in the East, it has this sort of amazing. Once you once you figure it out, it has this amazing like fourth dimensionality uh, to it, where you've got the map and you're looking at the map, but the turn itself represents like a flow of time, and so you've got to sort of play this game of okay, so I blasted a hole in this line, but when did the two units I used to open that hole? When did they arrive on the front? Did they arrive at the same time? Or did one of them arrive later, and I used both of them, and now that gap opened up later in the turn? I don't uh, think, are you talking about really? How, how do you how do you mean? Oh God! So, so the first guy that because if you have if you have two units, and this yeah. is a, the whole thing, and and um, I'm going to talk about this, and by the time this is up posted, probably will also you can read about it on quarter three. But the movement points for your first unit that blasted that hole are not going to change because the movement points for that second unit are, are decreased. Say, okay, so what, what I mean here is that if a unit starts on the front line and attacks to open a hole in the Soviet line, let's say, okay. All right. um, but it fails its first attack, and mm-hmm. you bring up another unit, and you launch a second attack, and that attack opens the gap. Mm-hmm. And now you've got a third unit that's been waiting, like, say, a panzer unit that's been waiting for a gap to open up, and it can shoot through. Now, it can still shoot through that gap, and it hasn't moved. Right. But once it goes through the gap that has opened up, it, is, it has fewer action points remaining. Uh, I much believe fewer, that that's much the case. Fewer. That's not it the is, case. That is absolutely the case. I'm just doing it, right? I mean, I'm, we're just, we're just, we must be discussing two different things, because that's one of the problems with the game, actually. I, th- I think what Rob is talking about is comparing it to the operational art of war, where you set up all your attacks that you're having in your turn. Right, and it resolves them all at once. Yeah, whereas in War in the East, what you do is you do one at a time, then you right. move, then you do one at a time, then you move, and that makes the time in the game feel weird and different, where you have you know a unit in the background that's going to launch through and take a city that's 20 hexes behind, but it hasn't actually moved until the others have done their attacks, but the others are doing their attacks in a sort of piecemeal, time-based fashion that it's it i mean it kind of it seems obvious when you do a lot of turn-based games but when you compare it to a game like the operational art of war um the time works in a different fashion well you can just you can make attacks during your move there's no combat phase right you sim- right you simply attack during your movement phase but if, yeah. if i if i have one panzer unit and it spends its entire turn trying to you know just attacking 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 and opens a hole and then another panzer unit is one hex behind that and wants to go through that hole, that second panzer unit has all of its movement points. It has all of its movement points, but can it use all of them? Sure. But that first move through the hole... Yeah, it can do whatever it, it wants. But it, uh, it can't move But it can't move its full movement through that hole. Yeah, it can. It can move its full movement any other direction. Where it, it depends is, on how big the hole is. If it's a one hex hole, then it's going to take a whole lot of movement points. Well, that's to get sort through. of a, that's sort of a zone of control. You're issue. talking zone of control. If if I yeah. if I blow up the the so the only thing that I think you might be talking about is that the 
movement point cost for a for a hex that you that you've changed into your control this turn versus a hex that you was your control this turn is different. But if 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 I wipe out a line of 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 um, of units and move a move a unit through that, it, it's still it, it it's not reducing the number of movement points that it it's has to use. I think I realized what Rob is talking about. Okay. Um, there are some units that I think like the non-pans are non-mechanical units, your regular infantry. Right. It costs more to move through enemy supply zones and take those. It costs like four points instead yeah, that's, of two. That's, that's moving, that's changing hex possession. Hex right? possession, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so either I have been horribly wrong all this time or I don't think I have. Okay. Um, <laughs> Now, now we're gonna have to look this up, but wow. because the way because the way the game has always seemed to work to me, and maybe it's just faking it with mm-hmm. hex possession. Yep. But the way it has always seemed to work to me is that you can't have a unit parked, you know, somewhere waiting for all these other units to fight and open up a road, and then move that unit its entire movement down that road that's now open, uh, even though it's taking the entire turn of combat to blast that road open i can i can assure you that not only can you do that but it's one of the fundamental uh ways in which you have to play in order as the german in order to complete all the encirclements that you need to complete to uh have a chance of winning the game Hmm. because i mean that's that's basically how you do it you basically open up a bunch of holes and then you have just the panzers roll through them uh if you just fire up the first you know scenario uh the most basic scenario um uh, road to Kiev, um, or sorry, Road to Minsk. Yeah, I was just playing that today. Okay, so you load up Road to Minsk, and you basically have, with uh, with Road to Minsk, you have a bunch of panzers uh, that are part of 24th Panzer Corps, and they're down near Brest-Litovsk. And so what you do is you take all the infantry and you clear Brest-Litovsk, which has, has a pretty decent uh, Soviet uh, uh, defense uh, there, by bringing a bunch of guys in and doing a deliberate attack, which basically uses all their movement points. And then you can take 24th Panzer Corps and just blast through there at their full, using their full movement allotment. And you have to do that. That's Yes, that's true. But I don't think the game implies that it takes the entire turn of combat to open up Brest-Litovsk. Uh, if you know the, that's Brest-Litovsk is actually poorly, fairly poorly defended. It has a un- lot of units there. But they kind of fold up under under German pressure and they really quickly rout or retreat uh, and so it opens up very quickly and so so there I just I've, I've you know I guess I've been totally miss I guess I've been interpreting things into the rules that aren't there mm-hmm. but what seems to the way it seems to be happening for me mm-hmm. is that if you have a case like that where at the start of the turn you just blast a hole open mm-hmm. you can absolutely launch those panzers down through the breakthrough mm-hmm. and they can go as far as you want you know mm-hmm. pretty much until their until their movement points run out right but if those guys if you bring if you bring a unit up to the line mm-hmm. to join that first attack mm-hmm. and it's like near the end of its movement mm-hmm. and you launch that attack with the unit that's near near the end of its movement mm-hmm. and open that hole going through that hole with the panzer unit is going to significantly reduce how much the panzer can move because the hole did not exist at the start of the turn it didn't even exist in the middle of the turn that's that's the like that's the way it seems to be working oh it's that's not that's not the case okay yeah i i haven't gotten that feeling but that would be really interesting if it managed that 
I'm, I'm well, appara- I mean, apparently it doesn't. <laughs> it, I don't. I, I honestly, I, I really don't think that that is the way it works. I think you may have been seeing some artifact of uh, zones of control, or I mean, I'm just right now. I'm testing that, and I, I'm not seeing the whole thing. But uh, I mean, you, the thing that you bring up is a good point. Is the is exactly that issue about um, you're having combat during movement, and and uh, a lot of board games try to do that with this kind of impulse system where you have, you know, you move and then you fight and then you have another, you know, sort of exploitation impulse or there's a, you know, a lot, a lot of board war games, there's a breakthrough phase. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the units that are moving again, because, you know, there's sort of a temporality to it, um, they don't have, uh, they don't have as many movement points to use. But uh, um, in War in the East, should focus on the fact that, uh, you know, this is a novel uh, sort of way of, uh, representing movement combat, and it's it's uh, it's very different from the way that tradi- a lot of traditional games uh, work, and it has its it has problems for that reason, um, because you can basically take an entire army group and fight it out, and use all of its movement points, which would sort of imply that time has passed. But then take a, a unit that hasn't moved, and then you know act as though basically for that. For that unit, nothing has happened, and it's just kind of flying through uh, through all these holes that weren't there at the beginning of the turn, but now they are. But that's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this game that I think is um, is interesting in terms of how they tried to present the game uh, and still tried to keep a lot of a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. I still yeah. don't know, for example. What difference it makes that I have, for example, in the 35th Infantry Division, I have 81 50-millimeter mortars, right? Or I have 19 se- – well, well I, if, you, if, you've got, if you've got 80, you can't do a damn thing. If you've got 82, it's overkill. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think that there's a, lot of, there's a lot in the game which uh, I feel is, um, is in there and it's shown to the player for the purpose uh, – for the purposes of player satisfaction. Like, how many of Panzer threes do I have in this Panzer division? Oh, I have 48, right? And that, that's that's a number that people want to know. Does it need to be in the game to, for, for a particular game reason? I, I don't think right. so. But, I mean, everything in the game is is for some player satisfaction, right? Having a having a nice uh, a nice map is for player satisfaction. You could do it on a, uh, you know, a monochromatic map where you have a W for every woods, right? So... Yeah, uh, all that it's it's all presentation to some extent. But that's kind of one of the first games. The game is one of the first things the game is trying to teach teach you is to to care about that. And I think that's one of the things that you you, you sort of stumbled over, Rowan, is that uh, one of the first things it's trying to tell you is like, oh no, you you got to dive right in there and start worrying about whether you've got uh, you know your full complement of Panzer threes or if you're running short and. You know, I mean, did you, did you did you ever end up playing around with that stuff, or was kind of your bargain with uh, with War in the East that you just wouldn't do that? Yeah, I I just didn't see how that worked in a relevant fashion. And when you told me that playing as the Germans, that wasn't it wasn't all that necessary to go into all the the refitting and um, creating new units and seeing who which which. Uh, 
pieces of tech, which tanks, which guns, which whatever were all going to go in those directions. Maybe I was overinterpreting what you said, but yeah, I basically got the impression that all that stuff was not all that important to just play the game. Um, although I did kind of stutter when I like went back to the manual and uh, I checked the, you know, how to win with the Russians or how to win with the Germans. And it said, okay, as the Germans, you really need to take Leningrad in the first year. And so you should probably take a turn or two and start moving your artillery up to your Northern Army group. And I was just thinking, I have no idea how to do that. Do I even want to do that? The answer and then is no. I, <laughs> and then I looked at the uh i looked at like what seemed to be going on under the hood a little bit um like it was automatically refitting those units in the north with more artillery or it was automatically doing something to those units in the north so i didn't i just said okay it seems to be doing that anyway which might not have been true and i will just play and see what happens yeah i mean the game's going to try to bring things back up to the official like uh you know paper strength of what the unit's supposed to be but it kind of leaves it up to you i guess how you're going to define what that unit's complement should be uh and i, I yeah i i think you know for for most of us i think that's probably a bridge too far um, I'm, I'm not sure we, I'm not sure most of us are going to be like, oh, I want to have, the, I want this unit basically to be, you know, sort of a siege assault unit. So I'm going to double, I'm going to double its complement of, you know, 150 millimeter artillery. Uh, I don't think most of us really want to do that. Uh, but it, for all I know, it's crucial. If the interface was more friendly about it, then I That's think that true. would work. Like if there were, was some kind of representation of artillery, um, that you could, you know, take a quick look at, see whether you had as much as you wanted, and then add that or, you know, balance it so that it was, you were getting more reinforcements in the north or whatever, um, then that would be great. But if I have to click through like six different things in order to see it, how much artillery I have and then add it, and I don't know if that's yeah. enough, and I don't know if the, how that stands relative to other things. Like if I play Civilization, I can see how many catapults I have. Um, if I'm playing this, I have to delve in just to see how much artillery I have because it's not its own separate unit. It's just a number buried somewhere. Well, I think that obviously a lot of the a lot of the um, you know clicking through things. I have to say, you know, there are people who like doing that, and there are people who like doing that in you know. There was so I remember reading a, a comment in. Um, Come somewhere where people really like the sort of jagged alliance where you have to, uh, you know, you have to get exactly the right number of clips of 22 millimeter ammunition or 22 ammunition or 9 millimeter ammunition for each kind of gun that you have for each character, right? And they really enjoy like lining all that stuff up. And, and in, in that sense, it's enjoyable to them. And I think that in this kind of game, clicking on, you know, 155 millimeter howitzer and assigning it through a series of clicks to some unit has a, you know, it, that's interesting in itself for the people that are interested in the, in the hardware and the, and the time period. But I think that there's like more of a visual representation in Jagged Alliance. I don't know that I like got exactly the right amount of clips or whatever, but I know I spent a lot of time managing that inventory system and trying to ensure that all of my, uh, 
all of those clips were full and then sending them to all the different people. Whereas this, I don't really even know how to begin doing well, that. And I think, I think with the, the difference there too is you also have the, que- the issue of relevant granularity where, you know, in, in Jagged Alliance, you got six dudes in a squad. And so if, you know, your Thompson gunner has five clips versus six clips, uh, you know, that's, that's going to matter. That's, that's, that's extremely relevant. It's, it, it's a little, it's a little harder to uh, gauge that stuff when you're talking about, you know, thousands of rifle squads, uh, you know, hundreds of tanks, hundred, you know, thousands, hundreds of trucks. That's, that's a little harder to gauge, but, but you're right, Bruce. I mean, it, it is kind of this, you know, War in the East is serving so many different levels of interest uh, that it's, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes it, you know, kind of seem initially very daunting is that it really is uh, supposed to work for people, you know, like me who just, you know, kind of want to see, you know, can I, you know, can I take Moscow in, you know, the, the spring of, in the, uh, win- by, before the winter of 41, can I do that? Uh, but then it's also got to be addressing people who really, you know, who have really given serious thought to, you know, if, you know, if, if Manstein had just had more Panther tanks, you know, really worried about that stuff. Well, I think, that, first of all, let me, let me just uh, address Ron's point. I mean, you can see things like, uh, things like how many artillery units, a uh, uh, particular unit has their, their called support units. And they're attached to headquarters, and you can allocate them to. I mean, you can do it just like a like a clip in uh, in uh, Jagged Lines Two. You just tell this support unit, like the whatever something Nebelver for battalion. You say, hey, you know, I want to uh, I want to attach it to this particular unit. So there's definitely a very clear representation of that. It's not just that they have you know so, so many you know barrels of of, of guns. Um, and you can actually click on 156 Nebelwerfer, and I, I believe it can. It'll tell you how many actually uh, Nebelwerfer uh, units it has, how many how many uh, engines. But um, as for as, Rob, to your point, I think that it's not so much. I mean, it's serving people with different levels of of interest, but I think it's also serving people with different levels of time. I mean. I definitely am one of the people that would love to be able to dig into the game and just figure out everything out about it. And at a different point in my life, I may have done that. Uh, unfortunately, given my current uh, job, I don't have that luxury and don't really ever expect to have that luxury. So uh, I'm I'm sort of stuck in the position of the person who just wants to see if they can get to Moscow. Um, and uh, that's... That doesn't mean that I'm less interested in the subject. It just means that I can't dig through all the um, all the uh, game mechanics, which I would love to be able to do. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do at one point was kind of just dig in and figure out exactly how the combat mechanics worked because I was I was fascinated by uh, uh, sort of an email that I got from Joel Billings, which which said that there was you know there were so many different calculations that went into a combat. It is very very difficult to really sort of give a good you know clear example of how a combat worked you had you know all these leader checks and then uh different squads fought different you know this thing fought that thing and and it wasn't just a case of you know 16 combat factors fight four combat factors so it's a four to one odds and you know you roll a two and it's a you know defender retreat um i would love to get into that stuff uh i just i can't i there's no i don't have time for it and it's it would be it's it's beyond me 
just from just from a solely time commitment standpoint. But that doesn't mean I'm, I would love to be the guy that uh, wants to know how many more you know Panzer threes uh, you know Guderian needed to to take Smolensk uh, before uh, before July. So. Um, and so I think that, and, and I also think that it's not it's it's serving people, the people that are going to to play this game for the very most part are people who uh, have an extreme level of interest in the subject. I mean, I just can't the, the amount of time it takes to uh, to just play a turn uh, is is uh, for a lot of people is prohibitive, and it and the, the interface is also. I mean, it's a it's a great interface from a war game standpoint, but it's not the greatest interface from a. Uh, from a, just a computer game standpoint, I think that turns people off as well. By the way, just going back to our timing discussion earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry, I don't want to. I don't want to mean to derail this on, on that timing discussion. Just I don't. I don't think that that's the way the game works. But what, what do you got? It, it kind of does. Okay. Um. So okay. So it's kind of in the boat. We're both right territory. I think you Uh-oh. might be a little more right. Hmm. Um. Because what it has is what it describes is uh. You have friendly hexes, mm-hmm. and then you have the pending friendly hexes, mm-hmm. and then you have the enemy-controlled hexes. Right. Pending friendly are hexes that have been captured this turn, mm-hmm. uh, and so they have additional costs for moving through them, uh, as, they, as the manual puts it, uh, to account for timing issues and the inherent difficulty involved in movement through recently cleared areas. So... My understanding of it was, I, I, I think, you know, pretty clearly inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of the way it actually ends up functioning, mm-hmm. was, I, I, it, it's actually kind of a good intuitive way to describe how it works. Uh, a unit sort of following along through recently cleared hexes mm-hmm. um, isn't going to burn movement points like in combat, but it's also going to have its movement points sapped by just moving through um, hexes that were not friendly until just a moment ago mm, I, I guess i mean the, the penalty is so the penalty is so small that uh i mean it's 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 almost not even like for a for a for a panzer unit it's uh it could cost two hexes and and in fact for for pending friendly hexes i think it's the same as a as for an for an enemy hex the the cost that a that like a motorized unit is going to pay to move into a hex that it is that is pending friendly that because it was just attacked versus a hex that is enemy controlled and it's making the the conversion I think is the same. I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, okay. uh, but uh, but either way, I, I think just the the bottom the bottom line with that point I think is just you know because it gets rid of that um, because it handles timing that way. It, it ends up it ends up becoming both a little a little harder to grok, but actually uh, a little more elegant than say um, anyone who played the operational war. I'm sure you're familiar with this, Rowan. Is you would have the first round of attacks set up where they were all supposed to be in a, you know a breeze and things were going to work fine, and you'd be able to get that second round of movement in. Yeah. Uh, but then there'd just be like one asshole enemy unit sitting there that would burn the entire turn, holding out, and then you just didn't get to do anything. And then, or you set up that round of attacks, and it decided that that was the entirety of your turn, right? And that was hard to tell as well. Well, yeah, I tried to give you an estimate of 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 how of how much time would be consumed with each attack, uh, but that that it was just an estimate, and it could go way way over, and that could sort of throw things off. And I think War in the East wisely sidesteps that because you have so many things going on 
that I think it would be enraging if you had you know sort of if you, if you had this model where it was like well you know you're attacking Minsk it, you know it took it took a little while so nobody nobody n- the rest of Barbarossa doesn't get to happen this turn sorry yeah although you know there are Barbarossa scenarios in the operational art of war where that happened and that's true and and that's why we don't play them that's why we play war in the east now yeah uh well the way to solve that problem is is through overruns is that if you have a if you have a combat that takes a certain odds level or su- sufficiently overwhelming then the unit that was defending sort of vanishes and then units get to continue to move through that's how a lot of board war games solve the barbarossa problem is that uh you know the russian units you just overrun them so you commit a certain number of units to sort of being fixed for that turn and then units that subsequently move through aren't penalized but yeah it's a i mean there <clears throat> there's so many ways to go about trying to uh trying to make breakthroughs and encirclements happen the way that they happened on the eastern front is is so very different from the way that uh, actually north africa is a very similar uh gaming problem and and uh game designers have spent a long time trying to actually get the flow of uh of north africa games right because you have exactly the same problem you have these these units that can move you know basically halfway across the map uh if they're unopposed which leads to this completely, uh, you know, uh, unrealistic um, gameplay where units are moving. It's this ar- complete artifact of the of the turn system, which is that you're moving a unit, uh, and the uh, enemy units are just kind of sitting there like, oh, there he goes. Look at those tanks go by. Oh, there they go. They're, we're getting surrounded. Oh, there's yeah. nothing we can do about it, right? So uh, there's a, a game by uh, uh, Mark Simonich, uh, who now is a graphic designer for... Um, uh, for GMT games, but uh, he want, he had his own game company back in the early uh, early 90s and uh, designed a game called Legend Begins about uh, Rommel. And he had this great thing where you basically drew chits. You had uh, a certain uh, number of chits in a cup, and the, you would draw the chits sequentially, and that's who got to move next. Uh, and you had more chits based on you know a better command structure or whatever. Um, and so you never really knew who was going to move next. So you didn't necessarily want to leave your units out there exposed because you might be getting attacked the next impulse. Or you might be able to get uh, – uh, to, to sort of chain off of that, that unit by moving the next unit. So, um, so there's, a, there's a lot of way, and each, each of those systems has a way of, of being gamed. I mean ultimately these are games, and you can sort of exploit the, the, uh, the, the artifact in any one of these systems – if you do it right, but that's kind of not the point. There was one thing that occurred to me while we were talking about tutorials and the importance of explaining things, and that is, uh, you know, sort of when I went into Dawn to the Danube, uh, I was sort of, I don't know the Eastern Front that well. You know, I mean, I've got a rough sketch of what happens and everything, what happens in each year, but I don't have a deep understanding of it at all. So I, I just sort of dive happily into Dawn to the Danube. Uh, being like, all right, going to get my Kharkov on, going to get my Stalingrad on, it's going to be great. And I had this reaction where I was like, oh god, did this game get much, much harder since uh, you know I last played it? And part of it was, yeah, I'd forgotten some stuff, I need to refresh my memory. And it turns out Barbarossa is a great place to learn the ropes because the Russians are basically a punching bag uh, for you to just sort of figure out how everything works uh, while you roll over them. Um, 
and you feel like a genius. But what what occurred to me is is, is that, and I kind of wish you know I kind of wish uh, War in the East had this. I wish more war games had this. Uh, was I kind of wanted a tutorial, or at least an explanation, sort of setting the stage, uh, kind of in line with uh, what you're doing on Quarter to Three, Bruce. Uh, you are so you know, and this isn't just like you know me blowing smoke or anything like that. You're you're writing a uh, you're writing another series of sort of like pseudo game diaries for War in the East, uh, for Quarter to Three, and really what you're doing though is you're you know at least at this stage for your Don to the Danube, uh, you know game diaries, you're sort of contextualizing everything in terms of what's this really about? You know the game we're about to describe. What's really happening here? What's what's the situation? And so the post I was just reading about was. Um, you know, sort of you laying the groundwork for what the hell happened during the Stalingrad campaign. What were you know? Why did it? Why did it happen? What was the German plan? How did all the? Uh, how did all the stuff uh, go down? And I do. I do find that that's actually really useful. I think that War in the East ends up presuming a lot of historical knowledge because if you're just looking at it as like counters on a map. It can actually be, you know, you can you can you can look at it, but it can actually be really daunting trying to figure out exactly how the scenario is supposed to play out. What are you what are you supposed to be doing here? Uh, and scenario notes tend to be a little sparse, and the manual is not really going to help you, you know, with this because the manual can tell you how the game works, but it can't really explain what am I supposed to do. With Barbarossa, that's a little bit obvious. You know, again, you got Moscow there, you got Leningrad there, you got flags sticking out of them. You should probably go try to take them. I think it's harder when you're talking about Kharkov, for instance. Because uh, that is, you know, the the what's going on is actually a little more complicated than that. And so what I found myself wishing is that, like, you know, I find that your 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 blog post, Bruce, have become sort of my crib notes hmm. for playing War in the East. Like, yeah. okay, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does Bruce say? <laughs> That's funny. Well, I'm I'm glad you're enjoying them. I'm, I th- I I really enjoy writing those. I mean, it's a it's a, it's something I look forward. I don't have a lot of time to write, and and every time that I think, oh, you know, I can sit down and do a War in the East uh, diary, I get a little happy because uh, I it's a subject that I love uh, to talk about and read about and think about. Um, but the 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 fact of the matter is that it's interesting for me to look at the sort of the game situation, then compare it to historical reality and then try to figure out what because the the ultimate goal is to win right and winning requires uh you know victory points and you can actually go through and sort of uh you know create a model for a win which is what i did in my last um in my last diary which i just got out excel and i said look look here are all the ways that the points are allocated in the game for this scenario you know basically you get 300 points for for Stalingrad and 300 points for Baku, and then you have so many points that the Russians get each turn that they hold certain cities. And so let's let's figure out how, you know what's a reasonable amount of time that uh, you can take to take a certain city, and let's see how many points the Russians are going to uh, are going to accumulate. And then let's add up all the points and see you know if the game were to go th- a certain way, who wins? And then if the the margin of victory is you have to basically have 1.2 times as many points as the opponent. Let's figure out how you get to 1.2 given a certain mix of, you know, captured objectives. And uh, that's what, that was one of the things that I didn't realize until in the Barbarossa scenario, that, you know, until really late, that a lot of the uh, Russian, a lot of the, the hexes that the Russians were going to get victory points for at the end of the game were completely, completely impossible for me to take uh i just couldn't get there like i think like 
Cherapovitz or something like all these like northern there was that uh, uh, you know cities that are basically almost in the Urals. Uh, if if you don't take them, the Russians get a whole bunch of points. Well, you know it's crazy. You're never going to take them. It's not realistic. So you know you can, regardless of what the actual campaign was like, you can. Sit down and try to see in game terms what do you think is realistic and then plug that into a formula and then figure out, oh, you know, if I just do this, then uh, I can win the scenario based on the way that the victory points are, are um, assigned. And victory is actually an interesting thing in, in War in the East. There's, a, there's kind of a big debate or it has been a big debate. There have been a big debate about a lot of things in War in the East since the type of uh, person – and I'm going to include myself in that – uh, category. So this is not meant to be disparaging in any way. But the type of person that likes this kind of game is the type of person that really gets, you know, exercised about a lot of very detailed things that fit into a certain perception or understanding of a game and of reality as they see it, um, and and what that means and 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 for for their particular understanding. And um, it's it's very clear that the way that the um, you know the scenarios and the and the campaign game work differently, and it's very difficult to just like I mean in uh, War in the Pacific, it's very difficult. The Japanese are the attacker; they're the Axis in War in the Pacific. The Germans are the attacker, the Axis in War in the East. It's very difficult for either one of those sides to win a sudden death victory, which is basically like they win the game, right? They win the war. So your your victory conditions then become basically do better than history um, because eventually I mean, you you really against the AI you have a chance against a, a against a uh, against a, a competent player I, I don't think you do and that may reflect the fact that you know it it was probably not going to be realistic for the Germans to actually win the war in Russia. Uh, they didn't have the uh, the manpower, and they didn't have the logistics. And no, you know, no matter how fast you you uh, you blow through the Soviets, the Soviets are going to move all of their production out of the way, and then you know they lost you know however many millions of men in the you know June to December 1941 campaign. Well, they'll just go get that many million, you know, plus more. And uh, be coming at you again. So the way that you measure victory is kind of sometimes a little unsatisfying because it's it's like uh, you know you're going to fight uh, this huge you know delaying retreating you know counter counter attack counter punch battle all the way back to Berlin and um, uh, it's uh, it, it's basically just a case of you know when when are the when are the Russians going to capture Berlin or not. Whereas in the scenarios, you can basically say, "Hey, look, you know, I took Stalingrad and I took these cities, and I win the scenario." So there, there, there's a different. The campaign and the scenario are, are kind of disconnected in that way. I also almost feel that. Um, and Rowan, did you play the? Uh, did you play the Soviet side at all? Do you play any Soviet Barbarossa? No. Um, this is actually something that is what I wanted to talk about about uh, not having difficulty getting into war games. Yeah, is that as they are generally two sides of um it they, they involve two sides where one's going to win and one's going to lose and it's very difficult for me to play a game without a clear concept of consistent 
not necessarily progress, but belief that something is getting better, belief that my actions are going to be improving something. Um, so, like, I'm playing my German game, and I'm getting into the winter of, I guess it's it's now 42, and all I'm doing is sitting and watching the Soviets, like, blow holes in my line. And I know that eventually, in a couple months, um, I'm going to have the ability to shore that up, to see, you know, what I can do, make things better, and so on. But at this point now, it's just not entertaining for me to lose. And it's difficult for me to get into a game where I know that there are going to be huge sections of it where all I'm going to be doing is trying not to lose as badly as I could be. And so playing as the Soviets in Barbarossa is just no appeal to me. Right. And, and I think that, you know, there, there, there's a couple, there's a couple things there. One is that it, it does kind of suck to just have, like to have a game basically force you for extended periods to go completely passive. Uh, that be, that might be the you know ebb and flow of a campaign. Uh, certainly, there's going to be phases where you have to dig in and just shore up your lines as best you can. Uh, but it, yeah, that can get a little bit tiresome, and there's not a lot of great uh, you know interesting decisions to be made there. You know, like oh look, the Soviets blew another hole in my line. I should probably fall back and form another line. That's not that's not that's not exciting stuff. The the other problem I I, I find uh, you know especially with the Soviet side. Uh, but I would say also where you're at, Rowan, is that for a campaign game, you almost have to house rule the existence of Stalin uh, of Stalin and Hitler back into the game, because when you're playing when you're playing uh, you know when you're playing the Germans or or the Soviets in War in the East, the one thing you don't have to contend with is batshit insane directives from Stavka or OKH. You just you know you can be like, oh man, the you know. The winter's coming, and you know I'm not quite in Moscow yet, and my guys are running low on supplies, and I need to get the hell out of here. And then you can get the hell out of there, you know. And uh, you know, just right there, like, you know, it changes the challenge quite a bit. And I think that's sort of the issue you're talking about with, uh, you know, especially when it comes to fighting a competent human player, Bruce. Is that you don't have neither you know neither of these sides is going to be forced to play, uh, you know, really insanely suboptimally, the way you know really commanders both were, uh, you know, at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, to address Rowan's point, I think there is a. I mean, I see exactly what what uh, Rowan exactly what you're saying. Um, the I think the. The satisfaction in your uh, pl- in playing the Soviets is that every single unit that you save uh, is sort of a little. Uh, you put them in a little stack, and those are all the units that you uh, that you uh, rescued from the from the Blitzkrieg. And the other thing is that you really have to have uh, sort of uh, this fine appreciation for um, denying the Germans a certain hex, which means that the next turn they can't cross that river, which means mm-hmm. that the next turn they can't get to this point, right? And you have to count – you sort of are looking at uh, – uh, in, in, a, in a multiplayer game, you're sort of worried about whether uh, your opponent has enough fuel for uh, for his uh, – for his panzers that they can they have enough movement points to get to you know x place and so you might you know basically dig somebody in behind a river 
thinking, okay, you know, he's going to have to spend so many movement points to knock me out of here, which means he's going to have to spend so many more movement points to get across, which means he's going to have to, you know, you can't get any, and you're, you're sort of, you're sort of building your defense, uh, knowing that little sort of toggles and movement points are going to make a huge difference because uh, if you can get the Germans to have to to stop, you know one hex before a major river that means that you know crossing the major river into uh into enemy zone of control is going to be uh, a huge movement point hit so you're you know you're doing all sorts of little things like trying to uh mess up their supplies and 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 things like that to slow them down uh with but but you have to really really examine the game for people who are who like basically like me who are are not uh able to or really to some extent want to sit there and count hexes all the time uh you know that that level of satisfaction can escape them it certainly escapes me and so i agree with you um i i while i was talking i had this other part of my brain that was just sort of trying to to rapidly recall um a a war game that did exactly what rob was trying to describe and unfortunately that part of my brain has failed me so not rod humble's stuff no 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 uh, although that's a, that's a, that's a, we got to get Rod Humble on and talk about that. I love that uh, the whole concept. Now it's a game in which I think that you had, and if any listeners uh, can think of it, please email us. Uh, it's a game which I think you had sort of a, this event deck where it, you got cards and you could be told to do something or you couldn't retreat from so so and so, and you had basically a, there was a huge penalty. If you didn't do whatever it was that you were supposed to do, and that was supposed to represent sort of like you know Führerbefehl or uh, you know uh, Stavka orders that um, you know a real commander would you know risk being you know fired or shot uh, if he didn't obey. So, um, and I can't think of the game, but you're Rob. That's a great point, um, especially because in light of the way that the campaign is currently currently works, the uh, the number one thing that the Russians need to do is they need to run. They just need to hightail yep. it out and and uh, save you leave as many- just enough units to trip up the Germans. Exactly, you preserve as many units as you can, but you have to keep the Germans sort of you know slowed down so that they're always at the end of their supply chain, uh, and then get all your production uh, out of the way. And once you got your production moved and your your units are preserved, then you're going to be able to counterattack pretty effectively. Um, and uh, and that's obviously not the way that um, that the uh, the Russians fought at the beginning of the campaign, which was that they kept counterattacking and, and refusing to retreat and counterattacking, and they got you know tons of you know millions of prisoners were taken because the Russians basically just wouldn't uh, wouldn't retreat, and Stalin uh, was uh, having people shot who did retreat. Um, and on the German side, there was a, um, an interesting. Um, AAR on the Matrix Game forums, which is called was called uh, Snowbarossa, which, in order to avoid all the penalties for all the supply penalties for being in Russia uh, during the winter, the uh, Germans invaded and then simply left, and you know moved all their units into Poland so that they could just hang out during the wintertime, and uh, then of course came back and. Uh, won the game, which I thought was hilarious, and we can I, we should put a link to that. I, I That's had, really interesting. Yeah, I, I mentioned that in a, um, a link in my uh, my uh, first War in the East series, 
um, because my my point was it was simultaneously completely ahistorical and ridiculous, and it was great because it just represents uh, uh, you know players sort of stretching the system to the you know to the breaking point and beyond because it's a game and it's interesting to do these things and see how they work and I, and I completely support uh, people doing that rather than house ruling it out. Um, of course, it was against the AI. Uh, I think a, um, a competent uh, Russian player would never allow the German. I mean, they, to give up that much ground, the Germans would never make it back. But uh, yeah, um, that's uh, that's just uh, that's just an example of all the things that can happen when you're playing, uh, you know, a game, which this clearly is. No, I I wanted to talk a little bit about the AI because it sure. seems like the Russian AI is well designed at trying to force the historical outcomes Mm -hmm. like the the way that it shifts its units around when it decides to attack or not Mm -hmm. it feels right like i don't know that it is right i don't know that it's all that smart but it it feels like um from my conception of the eastern front which is not as detailed as yours but Mm -hmm. uh it i get the feeling that you know i'm going in a way that's going to have a historical outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that, that uh, the game is really optimal when it's played by people who are playing historically against the AI. I mean, the, with a, understand, a general historical understanding and playing it sort of straightforwardly. And I think that, I mean, the ultimate test for me of a game, whether it, you know, quote, works, doesn't, end quote, or not, is whether it feels right and sort of or for a historical game and whether it sort of satisfies my uh you know historical understanding and and of course that's a very sort of parochial and and uh and non-rigorous uh you know rule or test but uh but for me that's that's kind of how i feel i mean if i if i um drive my panzers to the to the gates of leningrad and then sort of have to regroup and and uh and uh, the Russians build up a defense, and then I find it t- going much tougher. Um, then that seems, you know, that seems right to me. If I if I have a hard time initially because the Russians are really strong in the south and they have all their you know mechanized units there, and I take a lot of losses, and I need help to capture Kiev from you know from units in another army group. I mean that that feels right, and so that sort of seems like the game is doing things right now. Of course, they, things can be exploited, and and uh, just as I mentioned earlier, but. Uh, but it just feels. I think the game plays. That was my my basically my impression of the game when I got into it was that it just feels like it plays well um, as a as a sort of simulation or, or recreation of 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 the of the invasion of Russia. Which I, and to the game's great credit, I mean, it has a lot of moving parts that all kind of come together in a certain way to get to that point. But uh, can I ask you, Ron? I really, I'm really curious as to how how you go about when you play the game. You know, what what do you what do you think about, and um, what are the things that are most important to you, and when you're clicking on things, and what are you checking, and what are you ignoring? Um, well, my process during the invasion was, you know, to use the infantry to create holes and then send the tanks through and right. see how much I could wrap up. Right. Um, I stopped paying attention to victory points because I figured, you know, as I am invading, I am trying to take as much ground as I can and mm-hmm. um, take as many prisoners as I can, right. and the victory points will come. Mm-hmm. And if they don't come, then that's the game's fault, not me for right. being a bad general. Right. Then, as the campaign kind of bogged down, um, after I took the initial, initial burst by August or so... Uh, 
then it became a matter of trying to trying to look at where I could isolate Soviet pockets. And so, you know, I would scan the map and look for the points where it looked like I could just blast my tanks through. And those became harder and harder to find, especially since I had two of my um, Panzer Corps kind of pointing at Moscow and all the Soviets were right in front of Moscow. So what I would what I would do is basically try and see which of the Panzer Panzer Corps I could angle towards one another if I were pushing them forward. And, you know, a lot of the times that pointed at a city and a lot of the times it, it didn't. And some of the times it worked and some of the times it, it didn't. Um, so, were you, so were you paying for, paying attention to things like, you know, how, ma- how much supply was in your supply dumps and things like that? No. Okay. I was trying to make sure that my railroads were repaired. Mm-hmm. I was trying to make sure that my headquarters all were connected to the right. units with the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, blue good, red bad. Right. But, yeah. Uh, oh, and I would I would try to grab supply when I saw airplanes and headquarters right. that were abandoned. Right. So yeah. Um, and then, go ahead. Yeah. Sure. And then as winter approached, I started trying to ensure that I had some kind of decent lines and not advancing in front of fortifications that I had put together. But now, as winter is continuing and the Soviet groups seem to be getting higher numbers and being more effective and my my troops are not. I'm wondering if I did something wrong with the supply at some point or if this is just the way it's supposed to happen or um, that's fairly frustrating because like I don't I don't know how much of these outcomes are supposed to be right or how much so or, bad for me how much you can't how much you could improve those outcomes if you just moved the right units and understood what the what the mechanism was. Right, basically where the supply is coming from, right. um, and if I could have been doing that better. Because like I right. said, the first time I played, I didn't know how those railroad units worked. Right. Right. And I really, really ran out of supplies quickly. Yeah. Yeah. You, oh, and I'm, I'm, I'm also scanning behind the lines for partisans, which is really annoying, but right. it's understandably and historically annoying. Right, right. well, it's, it's, it's historically annoying and historically in, in gaming annoying. Uh, um, I, I'm wondering if there's a better solution the ones that where you just have to move your security units around and try to you know take them out is really kind of frustrating but but yeah in a historical context it does so i mean i what i would what i would recommend is that you you take a look in the rule book and then because a lot of stuff has changed uh go to the uh, matrix games forums and just really take a look at the way supply works um because uh there are all sorts of ways in which uh, i mean the whole game and to, to i think to the game's credit the whole game is based on uh, how well the Germans can supply their units, and uh, which was what the whole campaign was based on. And the Germans kind of failed uh, multiple times to, uh, you know, their 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 supply network just kind of broke down uh, because they had you know advanced so far and uh, they couldn't maintain their their rate of advance. And in war in the east, that exact same kind of thing happens, and you sort of get uh, get to this point where you're doing anything you possibly can to get supply to your forward units. And uh, understanding how to do that, uh, I'm not sure I still completely get it, but um, they, they keep changing some things about it that uh, are kind of weird. But uh, you know, the idea that you can uh, you can have uh, the, this air supply, uh, not the band, but uh, the uh, the game mechanic is a uh, uh, really kind of a, a frustrating thing for me to try to figure out how to how to get my units to uh, 
to you can sort of augment your um, your supply by using air units, which I think is a pretty standard thing in in, in multiplayer. But uh, I haven't really dug into it in single player simply because I seem to be able to do okay against the AI uh, without having to resort to funny tricks. Um, but uh, the funny tricks uh, bag is pretty big uh, and always subject to patch. So. Uh, it's it's uh, good I, to check that out. I, I feel like this game has changed a lot since we played it uh, last year, mm-hmm. uh, before the patches hit. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I, I feel, I'm, and I'm not sure how, because I haven't read the patch notes uh, mm-hmm. carefully, but, you know, for instance, I remember some of the early Barbarossa scenarios just mm-hmm. being absolutely brutal when it mm-hmm. came to timing to fulfill mm-hmm. basic objectives. Uh, okay. Things that, like, Minsk never worked out for me, ever, mm-hmm. ever, ever. All right. Uh, and playing with the patch, either I've turned into you know a genius, which I think you know, has been well you know demonstrated not to have been the case over the course of this episode, but like think like the 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 rules governing the early stage of the Blitzkrieg just seem to favor the Germans a little bit more now. Mm, I think I think that might be. I don't know if that's supply issues or if you're just getting better at understanding how the game works. I mean, the, I haven't gone back and played any of the scenarios. I'm sure that if I went back and played the scenarios. Uh, that I would be much better at them than I was when I first started the game. You know, the Road to Minsk I played multiple times and couldn't even get a minor victory, and I'm sure if I came went back, I mean, I eventually did, but I think if I went back now, understanding everything I understand about the game and played it again, regardless of whether it was easier due to patching, I would, uh, I think I would do much, much better, so. The AI is different on the Barbarossa versus the individual scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was doing Minsk I did it once or twice to get the feel of it and mm-hmm. I couldn't I it, you have like three turns to take Minsk and right. I didn't manage to do that although I got close enough to feel that I you know had the interface down mm-hmm. but then when I played the campaign I did roughly the same things that I did but the AI just abandoned Minsk like I got my panzers to its gates on the front door or on the on the first move and then the second move I was able to conquer it because they just moved all their guys out right that's because the AI is playing to not become encircled because it has somewhere to go in the uh, in the uh, in the scenario. It doesn't have anywhere to go. There's an edge of the map, um, and it needs yeah. to hold the it needs to hold the city. So, um, yeah, it's just it's just the AI is playing to different victory conditions in the in the in the campaign or in the Barbarossa scenario. It's playing exactly how a, a, a competent player would, which is that it would try to get everything the heck out of Minsk. Uh, as fast as possible. So I want to talk about these scenarios a little bit because mm-hmm. one of my original criticisms of the game was that there were so many Barbarossa scenarios and then there were the grand campaigns with different starting dates. Mm-hmm. But you really didn't have, you know, really I kind of felt like that initial offering, the one place that's kind of kind of skimped was on some of your more notable uh, Eastern Front uh, scenarios. Mm-hmm. And Down to the Danube uh, remedies that substantially. And yeah. so I kind of wanted to, you know, get your views on the expansion, Bruce, mm-hmm. and how you feel the scenario design is uh, in this $25 expansion. Um, I think it's mixed. Um, I'm, I was very disappointed when i when i um started the uh stalingrad scenario uh operation blue uh that it didn't extend past the um past the soviet counteroffensive uh, mm-hmm. so basically ended just before the counteroffensive did and it was basically whether you took um whether you took Stalingrad or not, and then whether you took the southern cities or not. I mean, that's that's basically the whole uh, point of my uh, my most recent post on uh, quarter three, which was that uh, 
the um, you can you can basically win that scenario by not necessarily. I mean, you can do other things than take Stalingrad, but uh, but the thing that I found um, I found disappointing was that it, it, you you're you're subject to that sort of end of the world uh, syndrome that that happens in any game, but especially a, a game that tries to take. Uh, a, a long period of time, and then simulate a small subset of that, yeah. which is that you know at the end of the at the end of the scenario, you're like, oh, you know, I can I can throw all of my uh, I can throw all of my panzers into this last ditch attempt to take Stalingrad, and that'll win me the you know win me the scenario, win me the game. Whereas in real life, it wouldn't really matter. I mean, yeah, fine, you take Stalingrad on uh, uh, on the on the 18th rather than the 19th, the Soviets are still going to counterattack, and you're still going to have a big problem when you get encircled. Um, so that's a scenario that I was kind of kind of disappointed not to see. Um, I was um, I was interested that they would they would have a scenario that was basically just the uh, the you know case blue you know phase one, which was the the Voronezh uh, uh, initial um, attack. Uh, it's it's kind of like a road uh, road to Minsk type thing. Three scenario, uh, three turns. You know, you have you basically have to take a city, um, but they would have that, and then they wouldn't have the uh, the longer uh, Stalingrad scenario. And then there's a there is an Operation Uranus uh, scenario, um, which uh, which is only six turns long, and it's only the you know once again it starts at the beginning of the counteroffensive and it only goes through the end of December when the Stalingrad pocket actually was fell at the end of January, beginning of February. So you're missing a whole month. I, I have some question about how these um, how these scenarios were, were arrived at and, and why. Well, a lot of them seem like it's clearly like really designed to be played from one side, Like to be honest. Like, I, I, I yes. think the, uh, the Operation uh, Uranus scenario is basically just, as the Soviet player, can you form the pocket and hold it? That's your that's your task, and if you're the German player, again things get kind of simple because you don't have Hitler saying you know stand there and die. You can just be like, oh man, I'm about to get encircled, and then you know get out. Uh, you can you, know, you can look at you can look at the uh, the Allied troops, the uh, Romanians and Italians, and realize like, well, that's not going to end well, and deal with it. Right. Um, so, and something similar happens with I, I sort of a similar issue actually is that where they choose to start and end these scenarios is. Interesting and a little bit frustrating because, you know, if you take the uh, Battle of Kharkov scenario, the second Battle of Kharkov uh, mm -hmm. before Case Blue, mm -hmm. uh, it pretty much starts after the Soviet offensive has completely petered out. Mm -hmm. And what you're left with is a scenario that's really primarily there, I think, for the German player to basically go and kick the Soviets' ass again. Right, because uh, you eliminate assailant. Or, yeah, Barvin Kovo mousetrap or whatever it's called. Yes. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's always what, what actually happened. Yes. So yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think that uh, um, a game like this, which has such a, um, uh, I don't know how to put it, you, having a, I, and, and I, sh I, I, I hate to say this because I really do appreciate having a, having a computer game that has short scenarios. And you know, the, I, I love the fact that they have these, you know, road to Stalingrad, you know, a road to Leningrad, road to Minsk kind of things. Um, the fact that they didn't also have longer scenarios because the sort of takes a lot out of the, uh, you know, I, I want to play a game that I can leave set up and uh, come back to, and uh, and and that's not there. Um, I wonder. I, I've I also noticed that several of these were. Um, 
or the Dawn to the Danube thing, uh, they were all designed by uh, somebody John else. John Duquette. Yeah. Who I think actually was a major scenario designer on um, Take Command 2, uh, hmm. Second Manassas. Okay. So so it, I, I'm wondering if the limitation is just how, you know, who they had available and how much time they had to design new scenarios, um, which is... Uh, which would be interesting to to think about it that way. Uh, that you're, um, you know, rather than saying this is the kind of scenario I want in my game, you would say this is the scenario that we had time to get somebody to make. Um, which is a very interesting uh, form of game design. That if we're talking about how I approached wargaming, mm-hmm. um, this discussion is reminding me of why Sid Meier's Gettysburg is my favorite wargame. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because it's accessible in you know, the real-time strategy and the simple interface, uh-huh. um, but also because it has that sort of branching scenario path where you have those simple scenarios where you can take all your troops and throw them in on that one last charge at the end. Mm-hmm. But it'll remember that, and there'll be another scenario that you play in the next 15 minutes that um you're going to have fewer troops in that scenario and i i don't know why more war games don't do that because it's one of my absolute favorite bits of game design ever where you know it you can do both the little graspable pieces and you can do the have the sort of long-term effects of those yeah i think Uh, it's a great point and I, how great would it be if War in the East had, you know, you play each of those first three road to whatever scenarios and whether you win or you lose, then you have the next ones where you try to take Leningrad with fewer troops or you have more troops to take Leningrad, but you have fewer troops in the South or whatever. And I mean, obviously, that's a lot harder to design um, just take, at a planning level. But it takes a lot more um, time. I, I mean, it's a lot more man man hours to do that. I mean, uh, and you I probably have to, you know. I mean, that's that's a that that then becomes a game engine kind of thing where the game engine has to be able to handle stuff like that. Um, I I really don't uh, I I really don't think that we're gonna get anything soon that's more satisfying and 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 de- and more in depth than than you know War in the East. Not that people shouldn't try, but I just have a have a feeling that that's that's sort of a a, a market niche that has been kind of uh kind of satisfied for a lot of people um i mean maybe i'm wrong i'm just completely speculating but um uh i think that uh, and it hasn't been the case in board games i mean people just keep making more uh russian front board games and they keep selling so uh maybe maybe i'm wrong but uh um, it, it's it's kind of it's, it's kind of hard to top. I, I I just really am impressed with the game, despite all the, all the criticisms and comments that I've made during the podcast. I really am impressed with with what uh, with what they were able to do with this. Um, I thought that when you wrote the uh, initial piece about going back to writing about your your next campaign about it, when you started talking about kind of the metaphorical power of um, the Eastern Front. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's another reason that I was attracted to the game is that it's, it's not that it's not just that this is something that could make for a good war game. It's Mm -hmm. like, this is the thing that war games are or is or whatever. This Mm -hmm. is, this is the, the platonic sort of, um, conflict that should be in a war game where you have two roughly even sides going back and forth at each other across this massive map that they're they're involved in all aspects of the map right Um, and yeah yeah, there are no like limitations to the concept 
Yeah, I think that um, there's a there's a different. You approach a game like this much differently than you approach sort of a Battle of the Bulge game. Um, you know, I I know that the new Battle of the Bulge game is coming out next uh, next week for the iPad. Um, the uh, John Butterfield's uh, Bulger or whatever. I've, sorry, I forgot the name, but um, it's a uh, it's a different way of looking at a. Uh, a conflict because there's so much that just reading the stuff that I that I read about um, the Eastern Front. I mean, it's just the, the the sort of level to which that conflict you know degraded, and the huge um, the scope of the of the uh, the battlefield just being you know going from basically Azerbaijan to Finland. Um, and all of it happening at once and all of it sort of making a difference. I mean, it really makes a difference that you have, uh, you know, you're, you're down there, um, attacking, uh, you know, Sevastopol or something like that. And then you have to, um, you have to take, uh, an extra turn. So you don't have, you know, you have a whole, uh, 11th army that you could send to some other sector, but, you know, you can't because it's tied up and, and, and you know, things from, that are geographically very far away uh, keep um, – or have big, uh, big effects. You know, moving one – moving well, one Panzer Corps from one part of the front to the other is a big undertaking, but it can have a decisive effect on that other part of the front. So you sort of feel uh, a lot of involvement in every decision that you make because all the decisions have, uh, have long-lasting repercussions. Yeah, I did, I did sort of, I guess that's one reason why I, you know, have sort of had an ambivalent reaction to uh, Don to the Danube, is because I guess I was kind of hoping, you know, it's, it's kind of this Goldilocks thing, right, where it's, you know, the three beds, and, you know, I was kind of hoping to be freed a little bit from that level of concern you were just talking about, Bruce, where you're sort of trying to keep this entire sprawling front in your head and trying to see how it's all interrelated because you know this is a map that's so big that when the entire thing is open to plan you can kind of get lost following it you know follow like you can you know if you follow like the easy lines of attack on the map and everything you can suddenly discover an entire panzer army is nowhere near where you need it to be right. just because while well, the train was easier the attacks were you know more open so you right. you know you just completely like lose a panzer army on the russian step that's a thing that can happen in this game uh you know transferring someone you know all the way from the north to the south uh of the front can have a huge impact for what's going to happen and i guess you know what I, what i kind of want from Don to the Danube was a little bit, you know, this this a, a combination, I guess, of a little bit, uh, you know, some of, uh, you know, War in the East's openness and scale, but also with maybe just a little bit more structure and a little bit less, uh, a little bit less, I guess, on my shoulders in terms of things I need to keep track of, mm-hmm. and. You know, that's where it falls just a little bit short. I think it almost ended up in this, it's a little too constrained. Uh, hmm. You know, again, that end of the world situation you talk about, where it's a little too, no, we're just talking about the Stalingrad encirclement. We're not talking about anything that happened after the pocket closed. You know, mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not dealing with that. No, we're just talking about the counterattack outside Kharkov. We're not talking about the opening stages of that battle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that I find just a little bit... 
you know, I want this combination, I guess, of, you know, I don't mind uh, really focused scenarios, little puzzly scenarios like mm-hmm. that. I don't mind them at all. I've, you know, I think actually as scenarios go, the ones in Down to the Danube are fine. Mm-hmm. But I also wish there were slightly more open ones, you know, yeah. still limited, you know, but I guess a little more like in that initial packet we got, you know, Road to Leningrad, Road mm-hmm. to Moscow or something, you had, you know, this, this idea of the slowly widening Blitzkrieg mm-hmm. and the like amount of stuff you have to deal with was slowly open up. And here I kind of wanted it to be like, okay, now here's a scenario that's going to tell you the story of the Stalingrad campaign. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't. There's no, there's not a scenario that really does that. Now I want a scenario that, you know, talks about the drive to the Vistula. Mm-hmm. There's not quite a scenario that does that either. Right. I think that, the, and, and I, I also think that uh, there is some um, people tend to want to play scenarios that use the whole map um, rather than um, the rather than just the limited space and you know thing like a Stalingrad scenario so I don't know how much how much um, things like that would get used they get used a ton by me but uh, um, I think that uh, there's some you lose some scope and some sort of imaginative space when you take a when you take a map and you just draw a line across the top and say, okay, no units can be used north of here. Yeah. Right? And that happens in definitely in the Stalingrad scenario. Um, you know, you could play the Stalingrad scenario as the story of Stalingrad by just playing the 1942 campaign and just stopping uh, at, you know, whatever in, in February 43. Um, so, I mean, that's that's a possibility as well, although I really like the, the fixed um, – fixed victory point assessment at the end of, you know, uh, uh, at the end of a, a fixed scenario and you, you know ahead of time what you need to take and everything is very scenario contextual, whereas uh, in a uh, 1942 campaign, you have to think about the whole front. And uh, frankly, if I'm playing a 1942 campaign, um, I probably, well, I mean, you, you I, I wouldn't, if I were to get to 1942 in a campaign game starting in 1941, I would never be in the position where I would be uh, at the um, the start of, of uh, the Stalingrad campaign because I would have units elsewhere. Uh, and like uh, like Rowan pointed out, you have to really, uh, you really need to take Leningrad in the first year to win. Uh, so that's where most, most of my um, effort would be, uh, would be focused. Last thing I wanted to bring up, was the question we 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 brought up at the start, which was about price. Now I know we talked about this when the game first came out, but I, I'm curious to you know see where you. Well, okay, I'm cheating. I know where you ended up on this, Rowan, because I read your piece. But uh, I, I, I was wondering if you could talk about where you ended up on the uh, eighty dollar price for this game. Well, first of all, I didn't buy it. I asked for it, and they gave it to me. So um, I I would probably not be able to buy an eighty dollar game, but I don't buy $60 games. I don't buy $40 games. Like I've, I spent $30 on Mass Effect 3 and wrote like five pieces on it. So that's that's where I am in terms of what I am able and willing to spend money on. But if there are games that are worth $60, then there are probably games that are worth $80. And this game seems to have, like it has all those different moving parts that you can get into and they're all so detailed and they're all, but they can all be ignored and you can just play it by right-clicking on, you know, where you want your units to go and attack. And um, it's 
really kind of exciting to see a War in the East game that has um, intuitives the wrong word because the interface is kind of a mess in so many ways, but it has a just kind of a right feeling to it. And I've started a bunch of um, Barbarossa games. I, I've played, uh, you know, the Operational Ardvor Barbarossas. I've played one or two others that I don't remember the names of. Um, and this one seems to have like an immediate grabbing me and feeling me feeling like I doing this in a historically accurate fashion. And it's doing that with all those details under the hood that I know that if I like really wanted to, I could get into, although I don't. Um, so like if there is a game that's worth $80, oh, and it's, you know, you know, your one designer's labor of love, the, the, that, uh, um, the amount of work that had to be put into this game to get all those systems balanced and working. Um, I think that's evidence or evident. And, uh, that, that sort of makes it seem like if there is a game that's worth $80, it could be a game like this. Again, I don't necessarily recommend that everyone go and spend $80, but if you are considering it, then I don't say that it, I wouldn't say that it's not worth it. You know, on the one hand, I, I, I'm I understand, I understand why a game like this is eighty dollars. I understand why uh, a company like Matrix tends to be really hesitant about uh, trying different price strategies because when you are dependent on basically a, a fairly small niche market, uh, you know, you, you know, you you have a rough idea how many of those gamers are out there and what they're willing to spend. And I, I think there's a tendency you you don't want to rock the boat. But where I do tend to, you know, where, where I tend to take issue with it is uh, exactly what you brought up there, Rowan. You know, I, I have a hard time envisioning the time in my life when I'm going to be like, yeah, $80, this is a good way to spend this $80. I'm going to spend it on a War in the East strategy game. Uh, you know, uh, Rob, yeah. it, it, it'll happen. Or <laughs> it'll be 80 bucks. Believe me, I mean, $80, I, I, I had to break into this, but I mean, $80 means so many different things to so many different people. I mean, $80 is less than my wife and I would spend on a dinner. And it's just not, I mean, uh, to me, I, I, it's 80 bucks. Okay, fine, I'm going to buy a war in the East game. I know there are tons of people who, you know, $80 is something that they would have to save up for, for, you know, a long time to, to spend $80 in a game. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think that it's possible to have a discussion like this. Um, the the company obviously feels that they yeah. can sell. I mean, it, it makes much more sense for them to sell, you know, ten thousand copies of this at eighty bucks than, uh, you know, twenty thousand copies at twenty bucks. Yeah. Right. I mean, if, if you're, it's an, it's sort of an inelastic market. Yeah. Um, the people, and this is exactly what you're alluding to. You know that they know how many of those gamers are out there, and they know that a lot of them are going to buy it. And by the way, it's not really eighty dollars. It's actually on sale for sixty dollars until middle of January. So yeah, if you listen to this and want to and want to want to pass up on a sixty dollar uh, console purchase to buy a War in the East, uh, you're you're a rough, roughly price parity right now. But uh, yeah, I, I I I mean, I totally understand that that you know. 80 bucks means so many different things to so many yeah. different people that it, it's I, I, I've uh, I just sort of stopped thinking about price in um, in game reviews because it's such an artificial you know and, and, and the other thing is you know people saying oh I, you know I wouldn't buy this game for 30 bucks but I'd buy it for 20 bucks right because it's you know uh, not this game. I'm saying any game, right? Yeah. Where, and where, I, where, and, I, and I don't know what those two numbers mean to you well, necessarily, right? Yeah. And, and it also means, you know, I think for some people they just have this idea that it, you know some game might be a uh, 
some game might be a uh, you know it, it's not good enough. The de- developers don't deserve you know to charge full price for some game, but they you know if you if they charge a discount price, then it would be a fair deal, right? Yeah. And and that's fine. You know, you can spend your money. People spend their money in all different ways with all different you know justifications. And I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that the the, the ultimately the decision making process for this kind of thing is is so from a consumer standpoint is so irrational. Um, that it almost doesn't even make sense to 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 talk about. It only makes sense to talk about it from a uh, from a publisher perspective, where it's you know you're very sure. Look, you know we can probably charge X amount uh, if we drop it in half for that price in half. Are we going to get double the sales? Probably not. Um, so they have to you know there's I'm sure there's a whole lot of arcane magic that goes on and just determining a price point. But I think for the for the publisher. Um, it makes a lot of sense to know where that line is, um, but for every, you know, if you talk to individual people, every single person is going to have a very different perspective on what that price means. So I, I, uh, I try to avoid it, even though I've now just kind of hijacked it. Uh, I tend to avoid questions of worth and whatever in terms of talking about that in my reviews. I went on a little Twitter rant recently about how I, I just cannot respond to someone when they ask me if a game is worth it yeah exactly um but um i did specifically want to write that piece that i did about this game because it was the 80 dollars game and because there were so many other different things that went on with um why it's the 80 dollars game why it's kind of the platonic idea of a war game and possibly the platonic war game itself um but uh one thing that I do think is worth noting about the price, if we're examining it, is that um, traditionally video games will go on sale. And I don't mean like just a Steam sale. I mean like traditionally you have a game come out at full price and then slowly the price goes down. And that's not really happening here. Like you say, it's on sale for 25% off, um, which um, how old is this? Like three years old? Two, uh, two years. Two years, yeah. Cheers. Yeah, I mean that's that's something that obviously they can set the price at and they can feel comfortable doing that. But just as given that there are a bunch of gamers out there who have to worry about the amount that they can spend, it's kind of frustrating because this game isn't going down and they might really love it. Um, yeah, I, I think that's actually my real frustration. It isn't necessarily what Matrix chooses to charge with any one of its games. I, I just have you know this. And maybe this is maybe this is just a fantasy that like you know strategy gamers always tell themselves. I mean, I, I know I've been guilty of it, saying that you know, well, if you know, if you just introduce people to this game and then explain them how to play it, oh my goodness, you convert them to the genre, and then they'd understand why Steel Panthers is amazing, and <laughs> then we could change the entire course of the game industry and bring back Myth and <laughs> Panzer General uh, and SSI. And, and okay, yeah, that's that, that, that's pie in the sky thinking. But I, I do I do have a concern that you know when you've got the best games in a genre, certainly some of the most interesting games in a genre. And I would say that like games like this, um, you know, possibly the uh, Panther Games uh, series uh, of um, you know Conquest of the Aegean, mm-hmm. and what was the name of the Bulge one they did? Um, it might have uh, been called Battle of the Combat Opera. Uh, yeah, something yeah. I can remember. The Highway to the Reich was their uh, yeah, yeah, the, Arnhem yeah. game. Yeah. Right. You know, when, when you've got, you know, all these games where, you know, they come out and then they just stay at, a, you know, a price that, you know, wh- whatever that 
amount means to you, it does mean that for a, for a lot of players, uh, particularly younger players, it's it's going to be a little bit of an exclusionary price. And uh, you know, I I do kind of have this worry that by you know not trying to make that stuff uh, you know more readily available. There's, there's just like, there's just, I, I have worries about like long-term health of the genre, you know, and I, I don't think it's always a good idea necessarily to always be selling to, you know, the, the, the same sort of captive audience because I think that can also be stultifying in its own way. It's up to Matrix how they want to handle all that, and yeah. you know, I totally understand why this game is the price that it is, but I also think there, you know, this is a case where there, there can be a greater good to discount prices and occasionally making that threshold for people who don't already know whether they're going to like this sort of game. Mm-hmm. Make that an easier choice for someone to find out. Uh, you know, for for a lot of games on Steam, you know, uh, you know, I, I'd say for most people, five dollars is five dollars to anyone. Twenty dollars is, you know, well, not twenty, but you know what I mean. Like they they hit these these prices where like it really like effectively costs you nothing to at least check it out. You know, the game's right. three four years old. Who gives a shit? Like try it, and you'll see. Maybe maybe it'll broaden your horizons. Mm-hmm. Matrix, I kind of feel like you know stuff is always a little bit behind a wall with that and and i think that you know i think that can be unfortunate in some ways um one of the things that i think well that i usually mention when i discuss these kinds of things is that gabe newell has said that the amount of revenue that they get when they do the steam sales doesn't change like they get the people who were waiting for the price to go that far down and that's the only time that they're going to buy it so they buy it and the revenue goes way up and those people also help deliver the word of mouth that keeps the sales steady after the sale has ended. Uh, and I don't know that that might not actually hold true for the war games. Yeah. You know, the, the niche market might be um, such that the people are willing to spend that $80 and there isn't a group that's waiting and there isn't a group that's going to be wanting to deliver that word of mouth. And it's possible that they've done the research on that, but it's also possible that they're just not really willing to try that. They're scared, scared of community backlash of people who spent $80 on a game at suddenly 20, or they're scared that it might actually be as Bruce said, that, um, they're, you know, selling $20,000 or 20,000 units at $20 a pop is not as good as 10,000 units at $80 a pop. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think there's. I think there's. Yeah, I agree. I think just there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns here that we can't really yeah. address without speaking to you know someone who has all the numbers and is willing to divulge that. Right. And that's never going to happen. On a podcast. Nobody, yeah, nobody ever talks so, about those numbers. Yeah, that's not going. That's not going to happen. It, except well, for Gabe on. Newell, who will obviously say the ones that make Steam look great. Right. Actually, no, but actually, I, I I think though, I mean, you do have points of comparison. Like, I mean, I don't like Matrix makes pretty gnarly games too, and yet Matrix is real is fairly prompt about like making sure things are discounted. I think, you know, you don't have to look very hard now to find Crusader Kings two going for twelve dollars. You, you said Paradox. You meant you meant Paradox, right? Not Matrix. Yeah, Paradox. You said Matrix. Yeah. Uh, I meant Paradox, yeah. Yeah, so you don't have to look hard to find Crusader Kings 2 going for $12. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they drop those prices fairly quickly. Now, you could say they have different concerns. Uh, certainly, they, they should use a common engine between a lot of their games. There's a lot of overlap. I imagine their costs, you know, per game tend to be a little bit lower in some ways. Uh, and it's possible that they're also just more, again, uh, have a bro- much broader appeal than even something like uh, War in the East. Mm-hmm. 
But I do, I do see like, you know, I do see like a company like that who make you know pretty serious strategy games. Some of them pretty damn uh, inaccessible in some ways. Uh, still, you know, sort of adopting what I think is you know kind of the common wisdom about di- digital distribution. And I gotta believe that's common wisdom for a reason. And I just you know there's 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 a few frustrations. I don't think you know War, War in the East necessarily should you know should have all that you know shoved on its plate. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I do think there is a, a broader question here of, you know, at what point, like, how do we introduce people to war games? Because, you know, if you're, if you are effectively the, the, you know, one of the last major war game publishers standing, because, you know, SSI are gone, Talentsoft are gone, uh, and you, you, you know, you kind of hold the, hold the licenses to a lot of that stuff, and you're kind of keeping that flame alive, um, you know, when when I got into the hobby, I was you know 12 years old, and you didn't have to look very hard to find Steel Panthers. Uh, you know, that was kind of that was kind of right in there, and I I do kind of feel that you know through price and just the you know splintering of the market, um, you know, it's it, I think it's much harder now for people to sort of find themselves uh, you know playing one of these games. To play the Unity Command. Hell yeah, that's that's a, that's actually a really good point too. Uh, Boy, uh, Unity of Command uh, turns out to have been the Dawn to the Danube expansion that I may have wanted. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the that's uh, coming out soon, right? The the, the Unity well, no, Command no, they're, they're doing a. Um, I think they're doing a Kursk uh, centered set. Uh, uh, no, it's, I think it's just more. Uh, it's it's more after sort of more after Stalingrad. Okay, okay, I think. I don't know, but we're going to find out, and we'll probably talk about it in a yeah, future podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Soon. Uh, but anyway, so that's been a mega discussion for a mega game. Uh, and that'll do it for us this week. Uh, next week, you're going to listen to uh, Troy. Welcome first-time guest Paul Dean for a discussion of board game modding. And then uh, hopefully we'll be able to cook up something a little special for you for our 200th episode. Mm. Uh, really looking forward to that. Uh, we're all frantically trying to bank things, though, because the holidays are fast upon us. And uh, the last thing we want to be doing is trying to figure out how to schedule a recording on Christmas Day. Because uh, that will not that end won't well. happen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but anyway, Rowan, Bruce, uh, thank you so much for joining me. As always, our thanks to Michael Hermes for cutting this monster down to size. Yes, Michael, uh, thank you. And we will talk to you next week. Uh, say goodnight, everybody. Good night. Thanks for the show. Wow, okay. That was awesome.